Tonight, we're going to take uh, some time to, to consider what I just want to suggest is a man's holy business of loving his wife. A man's holy business of loving his wife. And we'll be uh, mainly in Ephesians 5, but some in Genesis 2. So you can turn to Ephesians 5, and I'd like to read a few passages as we begin. Ephesians 5, verse 25. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, that he might present to himself the church in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she should be holy and blameless. Skipping down to verse 31, quoting from Genesis 2. I believe this is the fourth time that this passage is quoted in the New Testament. Paul writes, For this cause a man shall leave his father and mother and shall cleave to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. And then I think one of the greatest passages in all the scripture about marriage Paul says in verse 32, this mystery is great, but I'm speaking with reference to Christ and the church. Let's bow together in a word of prayer. Take a moment and pray for one of the guys that you happen to know the best, that he might hear from from the Lord this evening. Take a moment and pray for your wife as, um, you know, maybe she's putting the kids down or whatever. And uh, I know some, some of you have great marriages. And I know others of you have marriages that are hanging on by a thread. So just thank God for her, as tough as it may be, and ask him to really speak to you. I ask you to speak to me about my critical role in your plan for her Christian life. Father, we thank you again that we can open your word and, and be confident that you'll, you'll speak to us. And I ask that you would do so once again this evening in a way that would change us. And as men, and especially this evening as husbands, that we'd be different. That our wives might see more of you in us as a result of hearing from you this evening. In Jesus' name we ask. Amen. Years ago, I read uh, some of Chuck Colson's works, and I jotted down, uh, I forgot which book this was from, but I jotted down a quote I thought was worth remembering. He writes, when we think of holiness, some of you might remember this quote, Great saints of the past, like Francis of Assisi or George Mueller, spring to mind. Or contemporary giants of the faith, like Mother Teresa. But holiness, writes Colson, is not the private preserve of an elite 
core of martyrs, mystics, and Nobel Prize winners. Holiness is the everyday business of every Christian. It evidences itself in the decisions we make and the things we do day by day, hour by hour. Great words, I thought. In fact, as a fairly new Christian, for the first time, I began to begin to get a glimpse of what holiness is all about. It wasn't, it's not just the collar and the stained glass of the guy that, you know, you watched growing up and he never smiled and that wasn't holiness. <laughs> Anything but. And so if we're talking about what it means to lift up holy hands, and I'm just at the beginning of figuring this out, but if, if, if we're doing that this, this weekend, if it applies and makes a difference anywhere, right, it's, it's in our marriages if, if we're married. I was talking to a guy earlier today, and he said, you know, this, talking about marriage is, is uh, in fact, it's um, our, our, our retreat, Dan, our retreat uh, director, coordinator. He said, you know, for these young guys to hear about what God has in store for marriage at this stage can protect them from going down some paths that could be really harmful. Very, very wise words. And so my hope is, I guess, uh, how, how many guys are, are single here tonight? Um, so probably half or more, okay? Um, I wish, first of all, I'm so proud of you for being here. I, I'd, Brian, I wouldn't have gone to a men's retreat. Brian and I were talking, neither of us had the idea to blend in the college guys, and we were college pastors. What a, what a great initiative of, of the church. But you're so wise to try and understand what God has in store for marriage. I wished I'd, I'd give anything to go back. Um, and by God's grace, I, I made it to, to my wedding bed, technically a virgin, okay? But I'd give anything to go back and had never seen or touched another woman, ever. And so I hope that, you know, most of you will be married. Some of you may not, and if you're not, that, that's, that's good too. There's lots of things that God can do in your life as you wait on Him. But most of you will be, and, so, and if you're not, you'll have friends that are. So you, you, you want to be, as a Christian, you just want to get caught up in the drama of what God is doing in the world through marriage. It's, it's, it's really, really, really neat. And I'm just getting a glimpse. So what I want to do this evening is, is go back, first of all, and look at what I would like to call the master's portrait of marriage. There's a little paragraph tucked away at the very beginning of the scriptures in Genesis 2. So I want you to, to go to Genesis 2 with me and it's like we have just a little portrait of what, what God envisioned by Christian marriage. And I, I find at least, at least four portraits, or four facets of this portrait, if you will, four angles from which to look at it. But first, right up front, we need to understand it is a good design. Look at the way this is emphasized in the text. If you read in Genesis chapter 1, verse 12... 
after their kind, and God saw that it was good. And then again, uh, in, in verse, I'm sorry, up in verse 10, God saw that it was good. And you jump ahead to 21, the same thing. And God saw that it was good, talking about His creative work. In verse 31, the same thing, it finishes. And then you're struck and you stop as you're reading through your Bible in Genesis chapter 2. The Lord God said, it is not good for the man to be alone. I was officiating a wedding service and I was reading this passage. And upon reading that immediately, the, the groom said, Amen! <laughs> and, uh, you know, he was Baptist, so that, that's just fitting. But he was, he was agreeing. And so we're told that we have a helper suitable or literally corresponding to co- compliment him. And so your wife, believe it or not, and the longer you're married, you'll see she begins to bring, help bring the best out of you. Sometimes by first helping to expose the worst. It's a timeless design. No matter what the error, no matter what's going on, no matter what the culture, God's portrait and design and blueprint for this relationship is constant. So let's look at these facets. First of all, very obvious. Marriage is given by God. Look at verses 20. 1 and 22. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and he slept, and then he took one of his ribs and closed up the flesh at that place. And the Lord God fashioned into a woman the rib which he had taken from man and brought her to the man. God brings us together in marriage. And I'm, I'm, I'm never, uh, I don't, I'm never ceased to be amazed at the ways that couples meet. I've done a couple of weddings. Brian, you've probably done a few, Blake, where they meet on the, on the internet, online. They meet, and God brings them together, and it actually works. Uh, in, in my case, uh, some of you have heard this story, but literally a fumble on Kyle Field clearly led to my meeting my wife. You, I, I'm a freshman. And, and when I was a freshman, I was redshirted. I, I didn't play. But I didn't know that because at the time you couldn't redshirt. So you wanted, you wanted to get in the game. Unless you got hurt, you wanted to play. And so we're playing SMU. And Coach Slocum tells me before the game, hometown, you're from up there. I'm going to try to get you in. So fourth quarter, he calls my name. He grabs me on the shoulder. And I'm buckled up. I'm ready to go. And he says, you're going in the next play. So uh, I'm all ready to go. And then SMU fumbles the ball. I'm a linebacker this year. SMU fumbles the ball. We recover and keep it and ran the clock out. And so I didn't get, get in the game, in which no big deal. But at that time, I was really wrestling because all you know, friends were there and so forth. Two, three years later, I finish what I think is – my last year, I just played tight end, and Coach Jackie Sherrill called me, and he said, Jeff, they just changed the rule in the Southwest Conference. And in 79, anyone that didn't get hurt and didn't play a snap in a varsity contest is eligible for an extra year of playing. 
We're going to put in a 3-4 defense who wants you to play outside linebacker. Do you want to come back for one more year? Had a breakout season, got drafted, went to Kansas City, met my wife. And I want you to think it through for a moment. Had I played, had, had SMU not fumbled and I'd have gone in, even for one snap, the chances of me meeting my wife are, you know, God does cause all things to work together. And I want you, I, 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 sh- I share that story because all of you, maybe you don't have a fumble like that, or, but God brought you together. And even as you're married, you'll discover reasons why. We're at it 25 years, guys, and I'm just beginning to enjoy who she is and She's beginning to put up with who I, I am. Amen. So remember that God brought you together and gave you your marriage, especially when you're struggling. Secondly, it's to be enjoyed. There's a, basically a hymn of excitement. And the man said, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she's taken out of man. Scholars tell us he basically breaks into a hymn of praise. I'd like to, I think if he was an Aggie, he would have whooped, right, in excitement over the woman that God had given him. Thirdly, it is to be permanent. The terms make this crystal clear. There's, uh, the word for leave was a, was a word that meant torn apart. The word cleave meant the way flesh clings to the bones. And so the, the picture there is that there's a oneness uh, that is to be permanent. And, and it's graphically illustrated in this passage. Not only given by God to be enjoyed, but in the permanent, but it's to be intimate. And here we have in verse 25, and the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. And this passage certainly pictures, yes, the physical intimacy, the union that we enjoy, that we look forward to, that can be pretty awkward the first night, but it's a very enjoyable part. But also the emotional and the spiritual, the oneness, the two becoming one. I uh, worked at Canacuck, as some of you did, and Spike White was getting close to 70 and a couple of us were asking Spike, you know, Spike, uh, you, you seem to have a really good marriage with Darnell. Tell us, you know, the guys out there working together, how, how long do you enjoy each other? You know, how, just assuming that, you know, what, 50s, something, you know. And he said, I don't know how long. In other words, what he's saying is we're still enjoying each other. You know, in our day... Um, I think it's critical that many people grow up in the church thinking that, you know, God says no to sex. And really, when you look at the scripture, the predominant message is he says yes to enjoying sexual intimacy in marriage way before, no to waiting. Until the time is right. If you, if you, uh, there's, there's several places, and if you read through 
the Song of Solomon. I don't know if some of your, your guy, you guys' wives went to that uh, intimacy conference a couple of weeks ago, but they, uh, they coached up the ladies on some of the terms in there a little bit. <laughs> and uh, it's, it's bearing some fruit, I must say, around my household. <laughs> But you know, in Proverbs chapter 15, you don't need to turn there, but you read through, I'm sorry, Proverbs chapter 5, there's a great passage. You young men need to meditate on this because you're getting bombarded with, bombarded with the, you know, the, the, the intimacy outside and the, the sexual uh, promiscuity and so forth. And, and here... Solomon says, drink water from your own cistern and fresh water from your own well. Should your springs be dispersed abroad, streams of water in the streets, let them be yours alone and not for strangers. Let your fountain be blessed and rejoice in the wife of your youth, a loving hind and a graceful doe. Let her breasts satisfy you at all times. Be exhilarated, be intoxicated is the idea, always with her love. For why should you, my son, be exhilarated with an adulteress? There's, there's the way. Why, why ruin, why take away from what God has for you in marriage? It's, it's, it's like, did you ever look at a Christmas present early? It spoils it. it you know, besides dishonoring God, to, to, to mess around early, you, you, you want to you wait. And there's so much to enjoy. Well, what I want to do is, is, is jump ahead and, and uh, having sort of given us a, a little portrait, if you will, of, of God's design for marriage. Let's go to Ephesians 5. And I just I, I want you to have in mind an understanding, beginning, a, a working understanding of this of this mystery. I want to suggest that Ephesians 5 gives us three clues revealing the mystery. You know, one of the great passages, as I said uh, in Paul's letters, that uh, jumps out at me is this, this statement about marriage being a mystery. The word, the word mysterious that Paul uses is a, a very interesting word, and it has the idea that referring to, referring to, on the one hand, that which is incapable of being discovered by human beings, but on the other hand, that which is being revealed by God. And this mystery he's referring to is the relationship that he wants to have with us. And so the, the marriage is an illustration for all to see. So what we begin to see is that our marriages are way more about the glory of God and the furthering of His kingdom than our pleasure, as much as that's a huge part. So I submit that there's, in this passage, there's some clues. You know, when you're, when you're watching a good mystery, you... You know it's going somewhere, but you're waiting for clues to figure out, okay, what's going to happen next? How's this going to play out? 
I would suggest that the three, the three clues are, first of all, the Spirit's filling or the manifestation of Christ. This is a, a command that's given to the church. And it's interesting that, that the charge, the, the, the role that a husband and a wife have, the husband to love his wife and the wife to submit to her husband, these aren't difficult commands. They're not just difficult. I would submit they're impossible. And it's so interesting to me that right before these commands, you have the critical key passage on the ministry of the Holy Spirit in the life of the believer. And the, the verb here is, is in an imperative mood, so it's a, it's a command. It's not an option. This is, this is not something just for the pastoral staff and the elders. This is for every Christian in the body of Christ to participate in this revealing this mystery to the watching world around us. It's in the present tense. It's, it's, uh, it's to be continuous. It's an ongoing process. It's as if the text says, allow yourselves to be filled by the Spirit as you carry out your role in Christian marriage. A great parallel passage is in Colossians chapter 3 and verse 16 where Paul, Paul writes that uh, let the word of Christ richly dwell within you. Just let, let Christ's word guide your life. I was at a, at a game one time with a, a banking friend of mine. I think some of you know Jerry Fox. Uh, some of you, one of you went to church with him. You know, Jerry didn't play ball, but he loves the sport, and, and he wanted me to come to the game with him. And I was sitting on his right, and we were probably in about the 30 or so yard line, kind of low but close. And he kept commenting and had all these insights, and I'm going, this is incredible. Jerry understands this game and knows more about what's going on than anybody I've ever heard. And then I he looked around to talk to somebody and I noticed there was a little wire in, in, his, in his left ear. And you see, the secret, Jerry's secret to engaging and understanding what was going on in the game is he was listening to the commentary from the press box. Dave and Dave. You know, and it just struck me that, you know, that is the privilege we have as we allow the Word of God to dwell in our lives richly. We have a press box insight and perspective, not just about marriage, but about our lives as we allow the words of Christ to dwell in us richly and therefore the the Spirit of God as well. So let's take just a moment here and if, if, if the first clue is the Spirit's filling, this manifests the presence of Christ and it's a command of the church. Let's take just a few minutes while the wives aren't here and talk about the wives' submission which manifests the humility of Christ. Okay, and this is a command to the wife. There to be, and you see it in, in verses 22 through 24. I'm just going to read briefly. Wives, be subject to your own husbands as to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ 
also as the head of the church and he himself being the savior of the body. But as the church is subject to Christ, so also the wives ought to be to their own husbands and everything. To fully appreciate this passage, you have to understand the culture in which this was written. And I won't go into all the details, but women were not treated well. Okay, And and so this teaching could seem almost harsh and, and demeaning. But if you understand what the idea of submission is, it's, it's the word uh, that meant to, to, to line up in one's place, to be subject. It was a military term for filling a, a, vac- a vacancy in the rank or to have the, 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 the troops at full strength before going into battle. Do you see the beautiful picture that God is saying your wife plays in the army of your marriage? She's critical. She has an incredibly important role. And this respectful submission is not to be indiscriminate. Acts 5.29 clearly says she would imply that she's to obey God before a husband who is suggesting she do something contrary to his will. It's not to be incommunicative. 1 Peter 3 says we're to live with our wives. How? In an, anybody finish? In an understanding manner. Right? We're to make a study of our wives. Figure out how they work. Has anybody read the book, uh, The Five Love Languages? I'll tell you something, guys. The, the old version had this pink cover, and for years I didn't read it just because it looked like a girly book. But I'm going to tell you, the guy hit the nail on the head in understanding that there's different ways. You guys have different ways you enjoy being loved. And what you want to do is figure out how does your wife enjoy being loved? Is it, is it verbal affirmation? Is it physical touch? Is it acts of service? Is it gifts? What are, where's one, one other one, Brad? I'm, I'm losing. Quality time. Figure out how she likes to be loved. It's amazing the difference it can make in your marriage. And so the wife's role is critical and not only... Uh, guys, does she have a critical role? But the way she submits to us, if she's doing, if she's, if she's filling this command, she's giving us a picture, what? Of how we submit to Christ. You see how she has a, a powerful role in your life? If she's submitting to you and you're watching and observing then you have a beautiful example, better than any sermon or any book can give you, as to how you want to submit to Christ. It's, it's an awesome design by God. So the, 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 the wife's submission manifests the humility of Christ. Well, the third clue is the husband's love manifests what? The sacrifice of Christ. The sacrifice of of Christ. And this is a command to the husband, which we've read in verses 25 down through, through 30. You know, the, the first takeaway here is I want you to see the glorious purpose of this love. I hadn't really put this together, uh, shame to say, until just a few years ago, really, but. I was working on this some and looking at some of the passages in Revelation. There's a couple of passages I just want to 
bring to light here. Revelation 21, verse 2. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, made ready a bride adorned for her husband. (laughs) And then down in verse 9. And one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues came and spoke with me saying, Come here, I shall show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. And so the, the, the purpose of this love, I want you to note three times this passage emphasizes our charge, our privilege to love our wives as Christ loved the church from eternity past, to make her become all she was created to be. And so husbands, it's our privilege to allow the sacrificial love for our wives that they would become all that they can be in Jesus Christ. The picture here is, is, is of, of us presenting her to be the best she can be, the text has many terms, without having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she should be holy and blameless. All the the verbs here reveal that from start to finish, this is no passive couch potato type of love, if there is such a thing. Okay, but it's it's an initiating, persevering, sacrificing love. And if If we say, Paul, we need an example, where does he point us? He points us to the cross. You know, ideally, the husband loves the wife enough to die for her, and the the wife respects the husband enough to live for him. I came across a a piece from the history of, of the Greeks, and Cyrus, one of one of Cyrus's generals had a wife who had been accused of treachery and therefore was condemned to die. This general hadn't heard of, of, of the accusation, but as soon as he heard about it, he, he knew what that meant. And so he rushed to the palace and he burst into the throne room and he threw himself on the floor before the king and cried out, Oh, my Lord Cyrus, take my life instead of hers. Let me die in her place. Cyrus, who was known to be sort of a noble and extremely sensitive man, was so touched by this offer that his response was, Love like that must not be spoiled by death. Then he gave the husband and wife back to each other and let the wife go free. As the couple walked out, I'm guessing hand in hand, happily, of course, the husband said to his wife, did you notice how kindly the king looked at us when he gave you the pardon? And the wife replied, I had no eyes for the king. I saw only the man who was willing to die in my place. You know, obviously most of us won't have the opportunity, although we would, to take a truck or take a bullet or whatever to die for our wife. We'd, we'd, we'd do that if we're married. 
One wife told her husband, Dear, I know that you are willing to die for me. You've told me that many times. But while you're, while you're waiting to die, could you just fill in some of the time helping me dry the dishes every now and then? <laughs> I've, I've learned something about my wife. She is an acts of service girl. And it blesses her so much when I initiate and just handle the dishes. You know, A to Z rally the troops, get them all, you know, involved, four kids. You know, usually you can get at least one or two of them. (laughs) I've, I've found that there's a direct connection with my wife between the dish towel and the bed sheet. You know, I know we got a couple of young guys in here, but I'm telling you, it's, there's no joke that oftentimes some of, the, some of the best nights begin in the kitchen. I'm, I'm, I'm telling you. And uh, I guess that's, that's, all, that's all we'll talk about tonight there. So Paul gives us this glorious purpose But then, what about the everyday practice? And by the way, as we love our wives sacrificially, as we seek to get to know them and understand how to bring out the very best in them, given how they're made, you know what, guys? We're giving ourselves an example of how Christ loves us. Isn't that cool? And so as... David Segrist gets to know Becky and knows that she enjoys red sports cars, right? You know, David and Becky just love each other. David just adores her more and more. How many years, David? 44 years. It's awesome. And then finally, so Paul doesn't just leave it, you know, this glorious purpose. I mean, that's all there. But then he finishes with the everyday practice of this love. You know, you, you, you kind of you wonder, so how could the Paul go from the glorious heights of Christ's love for the church to the comparable depths of self-love? Look at, look at, the, look at the verses. 28, so husbands also ought to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his own wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and Cherishes it just as Christ does the church. You see, he's a realist and he knew that men need it to be real simple. So guys, if we got to go to the bathroom, she probably had to go 15 minutes ago. If we're thirsty, she was probably thirsty a half an hour ago. If we're tired, she was probably ready for a rest a couple of hours ago. So, in other words, we're, as we grow in our marriages, we're to think as much about our wives' bodies and their needs as our own. Nolan Ryan's wife wrote a book called uh, Covering Home. And I don't expect that any of you guys read the book. But she writes about it. She writes about their marriage She says this, it probably happened the first time 
on the high school baseball diamond in Alvin, Texas in the mid-1960s. Some of you young guys, you know, Nolan Ryan was, he was good, okay? (laughs) Then it happened repeatedly for three decades after that. Inevitably, sometime during a game, Nolan would pop out of the dugout, scan at the stands right behind home plate, looking for me. He would find my face and grin at me, maybe snapping his head as if to nod to say, there she is. There you are. I'm so glad. I'd wave and flash a smile back. Then he'd duck under the roof and turn back to the game. She writes, it was a simple moment, never noted in record books or career summaries. But of all the moments in all the games, it was the one that was most important to me. Guys, they don't... They don't care about the big deal we close. They don't care about the great sermon we preach, right, Brian? They don't care that we can fix the fence with the best of them, although that's on my list right now. (laughs) But they just need to know we're thinking about them. Little notes, text, whatever. You know, my wife and I... um, one of our favorite parts of the day every morning is just a you know a cup of coffee, a paper, a couple of verses that we're reading, enjoying. It's nothing formal. It's just but it's just the way we start every day. I just absolutely love it. Twenty five years this summer, and I hope that God gives us another twenty five more. But if I get hit by a truck on the way home, I want her to know that I love her so. Much. She is so precious to me. I'm going to finish this evening uh, giving you an example. I'm, I'm, you know, kind of at halftime here. Some of the men here, David and others, have been at it longer than I have, but just a great picture of how a man loved his wife. You know, we're, we, we vow for better, for worse, for richer, for poorer. Well, he, he uh, had a difficult time. Robertson McQuilkin was the former president of Columbia College, and his wife Muriel, many had known, uh, had suffered from the advanced stages of Alzheimer's disease. In March of 1990, Dr. McQuilkin announced his resignation in a letter, and he, here's, here's the letter he wrote to the board. My dear wife, Muriel, has been in failing mental health for about eight years. So far, I've been able to carry both her ever-growing needs and my leadership responsibilities at CBC. But recently, it has become apparent that Muriel is contented most of the time she is with me and almost none of the time that I'm away from her. It's not just discontent. She is filled with fear and even terror. That she has lost me and always goes in search of me when I leave home. And then she may be full of anger when when she cannot get to me. So it is clear to me that she needs me now full time. He goes on, Perhaps it would help you to understand if I shared with you what I shared at the time of the announcement of my resignation. The decision was made in a way 42 years ago when I promised to care for Muriel in sickness and in health till death 
do us part. So as I told the students and faculty, as a man of my word, integrity has something to do with it, but so does fairness. She has cared for me fully and sacrificially all these years. If I cared for her for the next 40 years, I would not be out of debt. Duty, however, can be grim and stoic. But there is more. You see, I love Muriel. She is a delight to me. Her childlike dependence and confidence in me, her warm love, occasional flashes of that wit I used to relish so, her happy spirit and tough resilience in the face of her continual distressing frustration. You see, I do not have to care for her. I get to. It is a high honor to care for such a wonderful person. He's giving the watching world a powerful message about how much God loves us. And this world desperately needs, especially you young men, to have this vision for the marriage that God may entrust to you someday. Let's close in a word of prayer. Father, we thank you that this marriage idea originates with you, right along with the stars in the sky. And yet far more glorious because you designed to illustrate, to to communicate that you want to have relationship with men and women. Lord, I just ask that you would take these passages and... Give us a fresh vision of and passion for your design for our marriages. We thank you for our time and we look forward to to what you'll do in the rest of the evening. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.